Welcome to Science Radio, a space where we chat about culture, belief, wellness and current events all through the lens of faith. Welcome back to another episode of Science Radio. My name is Jesse. I will be your host today. And for our very special interview, I have Mr. Justin Koo. Is that a terrible <laughs> rhyming? You're good. You're good. Welcome, Ju- welcome, Justin. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks, man. Hey, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast. I don't believe you've ever been on Science Radio before. I could be wrong. I have not been the host of this for the entirety of its thing, but you are a beloved friend of Adventist Media and the whole team here. So it's great to have you on the podcast today. I'm I'm a big fan of all the things that you guys do down there as well. So always happy to jump on and support. Justin, We are talking today about social media influencers. So, I don't know. First of all, I don't know if that's a hat that you're comfortable wearing. Is that something that you tell people when somebody stops you in a a coffee shop and they say, hey, what do you do with yourself? Are you happy to say, yeah, I'm a social media personality evangelist? What do you say to people? I'm happy wearing the, the hat of content creator. The idea of social media influencer, though, is probably my least favorite descriptor, though I get why people would use that those words. I think they are true words, but I don't know. For me, they they feel icky. There's a lot of mm. negative ideas when someone says, oh, I'm an influencer. You maybe think entitled, you think self-absorbed, and those are very much so things that I really don't want to be. Maybe there are times that I am those things, but it's not what I'm aiming for, at least. Yeah, I do feel that social media influencer has become a little bit of a pejorative in the popular conversation of late, or maybe not even of late. But I think that when we think of social media influencer, we think of your very vapid, self-absorbed TikTok dancing stars. We think of your Jake Pauls doing very irresponsible things in their multi-million dollar mansions. But I do also know that social media influencers are in many ways the preachers, the evangelists, the the politicians of our day that are getting into the homes and into the minds of the younger generation, the people who are becoming adults. And so I think, yeah, whether we lo- love them or, or hate them, these are the people that are, for lack of a better term, influencing our kids, our teenagers, and look, even people like you and me, we're consumers of this content. So that's what we're going to talk about today, because in the most recent issue of the magazine, we had an article about social media influencing and some of the dangers and the pitfalls, but also some of the things that we can learn from them. Now, we're not going to call you a social media influencer. Let's say that you are an expert or a, I don't know, a, a... critic i don't know you're somebody in the space though yeah i've been uh, a full-time content creator social media influencer if that's the term that you want to use uh, i've been in this general space for now about eight years so it is the thing that i think about most days of the week the one thing i want to do i think to start with is starting with your ministry background because you didn't Mm -hmm. start in the space all those years ago, even before your content creation days. You started as a literature evangelist. Now, for the Seventh-day Adventists in the in the room, we all understand, we we instantly have a picture of what that looks like. But for those of us who are listening who have no idea what that means, could you describe what an LE is and what it was like for you to be an LE? 
Sure. If you picture your Saturday morning or a Thursday evening, you're at the dinner table with your family and then someone rudely knocks on the door and interrupts what was happening uh, inside the house. That was me for a number of years. And a literature evangelist is the kind of person who goes door to door. And instead of selling knives or vacuum cleaners or fill in the blank, what we were doing was inviting people to do Bible studies, to, to get prayer, to join a local church, that type of thing. And so in a very weird way, this is what I committed myself to for 10 years. I was personally impacted by this type of ministry and thought that this was a reasonable way to share what I thought was the good news. Oddly enough, the way that I committed to this type of ministry was actually out of this desire to have an impact on as many people as possible. I thought about the potential ways that I could use my life. And since I was committed to doing ministry, I th certainly thought about being a pastor for quite a number of years. But when I did the math, it seemed like the average pastor maybe would be able to serve 100 people, maybe 200 people a week, something along those lines. If you think about the average attendance in a local church, and then when I compared that to knocking on people's doors, if I were to do that for a full day's worth of work, I might be able to reach two to 300 people in a given day. And so for me, the logic was, at least at the time, I can reach more people with a message that I'm very passionate about if I do this door-to-door -door thing. And so uh, going door-to-door -door was something that I really endured more than anything else. It is very difficult work. One could imagine getting the door slammed in your face. Occasionally, people are quite angry all that kind of stuff. Of course, you try to present yourself in a very kind and compassionate way. You're not wanting to be pushy in any way, shape, or form. But even still, you're visiting people as their guards are down after the end of the workday. So I get it. But the reason why I did it was simply because I thought that this was an effective way to reach large groups of people. That's an incredibly logical way of thinking about things. And you're right. It, it's a very weird thing. For me, as a pastor, who went through four years of seminary training and ended, did two years of internship. Like I had to spend six years of study and junior putting on youth group dinners and pizza <laughs> and games nights and stuff before I could graduate and become a quote unquote real pastor. And obviously there's no sort of a lot of people go back and forth between the qualitative and the quantitative data of if you're reaching a lot of people, that's great. If you just have the an impact on one person's life, maybe they'll turn out to be the next generation's Billy Graham or something like that. It's such a it's such a, a funny thing, but I very much respect your logical numbers data mindset. Now, there you mentioned that you did this for about 10 years. And then you had a bit of a, a crisis of faith, perhaps. I, I don't know if that's the right way to, to use it. But you, you began to realize that what you were doing was not the most effective data-driven uh, way to reach people and that there was something better out there that you could have done. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I was in Philadelphia at the time, for those who are unfamiliar with the geography uh, of the United States. That's on the east coast of the United States, not terribly far from Washington, D.C., for example. I was teaching at a Bible college, actually teaching uh, students how to do this door-to-door -door work. And so not only was I doing it, I was attempting to multiply my efforts by doing it, all in line with this data-driven approach. But then I met a young man who was a student at the school. His name is Michael Troynoski III. And the reason why I share his story 
is because the way that he became a Christian was actually because of a YouTube video. Now, this was all the way back in 2015, I believe. And at that time, at least in church spaces, the narrative around social media was a very kind of dismal outlook. People had a great deal of skepticism as to was this important? Was this even uh, healthy? Should we run away from it? And if you were to attend certain conferences, church spaces, you might hear a message or two talking about the negative, addictive, and dark underbelly of the internet type of a thing. And sure, all well and good, that's absolutely the case. But when I heard Michael's story, how he decided to become a Christian because of a YouTube video, it started to challenge my underlying beliefs uh, about how one could utilize this tool. And I started to see it as a tool. Rather than seeing it as an objectively good or a bad thing, this dichotomy, I started to realize, oh, social media is a neutral thing. It really just depends on how you use it. And therefore, if all the people with good morals and good values, all the just this positive outlook on life, if they retreat from this space because of the presence of vitriolic rhetoric and just angry, divisive behavior, if they all retreat from this space, then it's just going to keep getting worse. And what gets promoted is this kind of negative thing. And so for me, it was an invitation at that time, rather than lean back, was to lean forward. And what would it look like for me to faithfully engage on this platform if the outcome could be something like what Michael experienced, a transform in his entire outlook on life, could that be worth investing into? And so the logical thing to do was to start a YouTube channel? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. I Because he was impacted by YouTube, I figured, ah, oh, why not YouTube? I'll try a YouTube channel. And so I started making weekly videos after work kind of a thing. And the long story short of it is about 10 months into that journey, my wife and I ended up resigning our position there at the school and I kind of went full time, which is uh, it's a bit of a misguided uh, descriptor of the story. It is all factually true that 10 months after starting the YouTube channel, I did quit my job and went full time onto content creation, social media, YouTube, if you will. But the reason why I say it's misguided is because that just meant I made no money. <laughs> people have this idea of that, oh, if you're a social media influencer, you're making millions and millions of dollars. And sure, there are people that are out there doing that. But at the time, I think I had 300 subscribers. It was nothing special. And so it was really for me and my wife, it, it was a journey of faith. It was something that we felt that God had called us to do. And we were willing to be obedient and just explore what could be. So you started on YouTube 300 subscribers is where you went full-time, quote-unquote. And I imagine that as somebody in that position, I feel like it's difficult for people of faith to do this sort of thing because you have almost like, and maybe there's more nuance in here, so tell me if there is. I feel like you've got almost like split priorities where on the one hand, you want to reach people with the message of Jesus and you want to see people changing their lives and becoming open to faith and hopefully giving their lives to Christ. That's like the ultimate. But on the other hand, if you're doing this as a job, you've got to make money. Otherwise, man does not live on bread alone <laughs> sort of thing. So, what was that like for you as somebody who really obviously had a deep passion for reaching people with the greatest story ever told, the story of Jesus, but at the same time going, I need a place to live. I need to be able to feed my wife and I. That's a hugely precarious uh, position 
to be in. It was the biggest challenge that we faced was how do we get to a point where this thing actually makes sense, not from like the faith perspective, but from the raw numbers, the brass taxes, how do I actually put food on the table? Now, at the beginning, the way that we looked at this decision was in the same way that someone might take a gap year in the middle of college to go traveling to take uh, this new experience in the church community uh, that we're raised in. It's not entirely uncommon to take a gap year to go be a missionary, for example. The way that we saw this decision was we would take one year to be digital missionaries. And so while we were doing this, my wife was still working. She thankfully has a, a good career a good training under her belt, and she was willing to shoulder that burden. And so with her support and then this outlook helped us delay the need to solving our financial circumstance for a little bit. And we did it for one year. And by the end of the first year, it's like, oh, okay, this seems to be picking up a little bit of steam. And there's definitely promise. We had heard enough stories uh, of people who had been impacted by our YouTube uh, videos that it's like, okay, this makes sense, even if it doesn't mm. make dollars, if that, if that makes sense. <laughs> so we just kept going down the road. And it wasn't until several years later that things started to add up financially, where mm. we, people from the outside could say, oh, that was a responsible decision to make. But for the first few <laughs> years, it was a pain point, I'll be honest. So how long did it take you to, and maybe this is not a good question to ask, but how long did it take you to feel like you were successful or like you you'd made it or like you had the effort and the the blood sweat and tears actually made sense and that it actually had a payoff for you as a as a professional i suppose you could say yeah that's a tough question to answer um so simply um because there were certainly days from the very beginning that i felt very successful felt like i was doing exactly what i wanted to accomplish when i thought through this question from the perspective of was I actually making money? It was a very discouraging answer for many years. If I thought about it through the lens of, am I being faithful to what I think God has called me to do? Then I would feel very successful no matter what the kind of results were, so to speak, no matter how many views or comments people would give or how much money I was making. And so early on, it required me to really be diligent about seeing what I do through the lens of calling as opposed to a vocation, so to speak. Mm. And I know that in the Western world, those things are often overlapped. We believe that our calling is our job and our job is our calling. And those two things are always the same. But a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, actually gave me language that helped me to distance those two. One was a calling, the other was an assignment. And so when I started to distance my the relationship between those two, it actually helped me to stay the course a little bit more steadfastly. I could realize that I was absolutely fulfilling my calling, but I was still needing to put in some work to figure out how it would make sense, how it would make dollars on the back end. And so as I started to think about it through that, it, it challenged me from an entrepreneurial perspective to really grow quite a bit to, I can, to where I can justify it financially. So is it that your sense of calling or that higher level uh, of purpose did that take the pressure off of feeling like you had to have every video be have more views than the last to increase your CPM or, or whatever the, the metric is that might somebody might think is like the goal when it comes to a platform like YouTube? Oh, sure. Yeah, I think that the higher sense of calling really challenged all the other assumptions. 
So I, I think we're sold uh, a bit of a narrative as to what a, a life well lived looks like. And a life well look a life well lived looks like having money in the bank. It looks like having the respect and the honor of your peers. It looks like having many different things. And those are all well and good and all things being equal, I want those things, but it really challenged my definition of what a life well lived looks like. And for me, at the core of it all, to the exclusion of everything else, the only thing that mattered to me was being faithful to what I believed God was calling me to do personally. Mm-hmm. And so it, it allowed me, again, to, to make that separation between what I was doing with the majority of my time and was I making money, yes or no. And so because of that, it allowed me to be much more patient in the process of building a business. And that's really what it come down to is that, okay, I, yes, I'm doing this great thing from a missional perspective, but I also have some other demands on me. And it's certainly as we started to begin thinking about having a family, those demands became greater and greater. But thankfully, up until by that time, I had invested enough in kind of self, self-education, self if you will, getting coaching and mentors and all the kind of challenges of launching a business out of nothing. And so by that time, I would put enough of the pieces together that it was no longer one or the other, and it was a healthy combination of the both. I want to spend a, a good portion of time talking about the social media landscape of today. But okay. before we do that, I will just mention for our listeners that Justin, you won't be able to tell because he just sounds fantastic. But Justin is battling a bit of a cold at the moment. And the fact that he's doing this is just incredible. So um, everybody give a little bit of a clap in the chat to Justin. You, So the one thing we haven't actually mentioned yet is that your platform on YouTube, your YouTube channel, you were called That Christian Vlogger. It was vlogs, it was Bible study, it was really great content. And you decided at a certain point, arguably some might say at the point where you were experiencing the most success, to walk away from that brand, that method, that idea altogether. Um, Could you just walk us through a little bit about why you chose to do that at that time, what you were walking into and, and what that all meant to you at the time? Yeah. So for the first several years of my YouTube journey, I was creating, as you said, Bible study contents and very explicitly Christian content. And what I felt stirring in my heart was that God was calling me to do something different, which was a challenge because as you mentioned, yeah, things were going relatively well. Like growth was sustained. I was one of the larger air quotes Christian channels at the time. And that was fantastic. However, the kind of content that I felt led to make was almost anti-Christian by a certain definition. I started to feel the invitation to to host conversations with people who saw the world differently. The show would eventually become titled I'm Listening. And the simple premise was, can I sit across the table from someone who sees the world in a really different light on some very key issues? And what would it look like to actually give them space to talk? So for like the way that people from the outside would see it, or maybe those who didn't appreciate what I felt called to do, they would describe it as platforming people who were antagonistic to my faith, for example. I would have conversations with people who were of different political persuasions, people who were of different religions, pagan people, like quite literally, people who would vote on some key issues like for example, abortion, which in the United States is a very high, uh, hotly debated uh, uh, subject. And so all the, uh, the, the whole premise of the show was give space to people who dissent from my view, or at least the view that I would represent on the show. 
and literally just listen. And so it was a big challenge for me because up to that point, all I had practiced was communicating and wasn't quite ever accused of being a great listener, if you understand what I'm saying. And so it was a creative challenge. And it was also a challenge, I think, for my audience to be subjected to the exact kind of beliefs that maybe grandma had warned them about. Uh, And so it came at a cost to a certain extent, but the reason why I would do it, again, comes back to that ultimate definition of what success looks like. And for me, it's just being faithful to what God was calling me to do. And so even though it was so different and the consequence was uh, quite a bit of a dip in my online engagements, I went full steam ahead. One of the things I've always admired about you, Justin, is your willingness to just embrace new stuff, even if the idea isn't necessarily proven or that it's not a surefire way for success. Uh, and I know that when TikTok started picking up steam, what you were one of the first champions to, in the Christian world at least, because obviously we're always a little bit behind when it comes to new trends, but you're one of the first champions to say, hey, we need to embrace some of these new platforms. And so fast forward to today, could you describe for us what your online activity looks like? What is a what is an everyday, maybe that's not the right way to go, but what does a general rhythm for your online activity look like in your world? Yeah, so it's a little bit different now. Now I, I, I create a lot more short form content. Uh, as one might imagine, uh, the world has changed with something like TikTok and how every other platform is responding to TikTok by promoting short-form vertical videos. And so I tend to dabble a lot in those short-form platforms. Uh, and the goal from there is to be able to provide some type of value or a thought-provoking question or something along those lines. And the next step is really the most important step, is how do I invite people into a community of faith as a result of their curiosity or or whatever they might be thinking as they consume content. And so my primary focus now is, yes, content creation, but I think that the it's elevated a little bit in what I've realized social media can do. Early on in my journey, I thought that the value of social media was that you just impact the way that people think. And that's great. And you do that primarily through views and that type of a thing. But I started to realize that if I was a little bit more intentional, I could actually build a system which encouraged people to go on to next steps. So what that looks like now is I help to steward a community of a couple thousand people who are engaged in the process of Bible study multiple times throughout a week. So I lead a, I help facilitate a network of about a dozen Bible studies that happen every week. And I don't know, my, my Bible study happens on Sunday mornings, for example, and I can have about 100 people in the digital room, so to speak, um, and we're all just journeying together, learning from each other. Uh, a lot of the insights and lessons from the YouTube side of the journey, a lot of the insights from the I'm listening side of the journey are implemented in these these experiences. But the goal now is to show up everywhere that people are uh, digitally and to invite them to kind of a shared communal experience. So yeah, in the marketing world, we call that conversion, right? It's not just about reaching people, but it's about actually having an influence. And I think an influence outside of the TikTok video. And I think that's probably a lot of people who work for brands or who are trying to sell their own personal brand would go, oh, wow, that's that's a massively important part. I want to switch to, let's switch to the commentator side of things. So if Justin, you could put on your social media commentator hat, because I'm sure you think about this stuff 
quite a bit. And we're seeing a trend in primary age kids, teenagers. A couple of years ago, if you were to ask the average kid what they wanted to be when they grew up, they might have said fireman or astronaut. Then it became, I want to be a YouTuber. I want to be an Instagrammer or, or I don't even know if people wanted to be an Instagrammer necessarily, but I know a lot of people ended up on Instagram and ended up wildly popular for reasons that will uh, forever be a mystery to me. But now I know that there are a lot of kids, there are a lot of teenagers who see social media influencing as a get-rich-quick kind of scheme or as a golden ticket to fame, fortune, the good life, whatever you might term it. Is that a realistic ambition? Is the, the global economy moving toward that idea where everybody has a personal brand and everybody needs to be on social media to sell that personal brand? What are your thoughts on that? And I know that's a very broad question, so attack it however you would like. Yeah, I would say I would say that it's probably easier than ever before to leverage the internet to create a very reasonable level of income, something like six figures or so. I think that's actually very achievable for a good number of people if you have enough patience and have a certain level of competency. To the high schooler or whatever that thinks that maybe just through social media they can sidestep the entire kind of process of having to go to school and everything else. I think that that's a bit misguided. I think that there are certainly some people who seem to be able to do that, but they're unicorns by and large. And so in the same way that you wouldn't plan to achieve financial security by winning the lottery, like that's not a good strategy, but people happen to be able to do that. It's probably the similar kind of analogy that social media, you go from zero to multiple millions of followers and are able to monetize that at the same time because those are actually two different skill sets the skill set of growing an audience, and then the other skill set of being able to monetize it to make a living. The odds of being able to go from nothing with all things being equal little skills in a short amount of time is near zero. You have to be one of these unicorns in order for that to work. But the flip side of it is actually really encouraging is that if you have a core competency, if you are actually reasonably uh, equipped and talented at a particular skill set, if you're good at solving a specific problem, I think that a, a lot more people than pe- can maybe the guess is a lot more people can actually earn six-figure income uh, that yeah. is much more achievable than people realize and i think that you could do it all things being equal in less time that it takes to uh, find a successful career in other lines of work so if you have a, a, a certain skill set that is in demand in the marketplace I want to say it's very reasonable to shoot for a six-figure plus business, six, seven-figure plus business in a couple of years. So it's just, it's yes and or no and. Mm. It just depends on who you are and what you bring to the table. But I, I know I, I traffic with these people. I know a lot of people who have built six and seven-figure businesses. And there are certain things that you can learn, certain predictable steps to take. There's a lot that has been said about public figures, whether they be celebrities or politicians or writers or just people in the public eye. And we've seen that there are certain people that have dealt well with being a a public figure. They've worked it out. What, in your view, is the difference between a conventional public figure, whether they be a celebrity or somebody famous in the conventional sense, versus somebody who can become famous sitting in their bedroom with their face on TikTok? Yeah, I think that the challenge really comes down to access. 
all things being equal, I'll never get to talk to Brad Pitt or fill in the blank traditional celebrity. And so as a result, I would imagine, I don't know, because I'm not a celebrity in any sense, but I would imagine that the primary critic is the tabloid. It's the newspaper. It's a television show thing. And even that, you can probably manage the, the relationship between it a little bit. But if you're on social media, the challenge, at least that I face or I have faced, is the, the critics are right there along with the praise. You have instant access to everyone's thoughts and feelings about what you do. And that can be a wild roller coaster depending on the season, depending on who you are and what you put out into the world. But I think that's probably one of the, the, the biggest pitfalls is just the, the sheer volume of criticism. And I say that as someone who I think is well, very well adjusted to criticism. Like I said, knocking on doors for 10 years prepares you for rejection. It prepares you for harsh critics. And mm-hmm. even with that in my back pocket, occasionally gets through the armor and it does affect you in some very meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And especially for someone who maybe temperamentally is a little bit more tender, it's a, a little bit more influ- able to be influenced, that can be a really dark place if you don't quickly learn how to distance your identity from what you actually produce. And for people who don't really know what it's like to be a literature evangelist, what would you consider to be a reasonable success rate when it comes to knocking on a a bunch of doors? Oh, less than 10%. We're talking about 5% maybe. (laughs) So, So if 100 people, you would consider success be five people invite you in and say, yeah, I'm, you know, prepared to buy a book or to have a conversation or to do a Bible study. I would say between 5 and 10% is reasonable to shoot for. And even that is hard. If you're yeah. not if you don't have communicative skills, that might be a hard goal to reach. All yeah. things being equal. So we're talking about conservatively 80 80% plus are always rejecting yeah. you. And I think the average person tries to avoid very strongly any experience in life where they get rejected or told no in some meaningful way. And so, all, all that to say, showing up online can be quite an identity crisis if you've never experienced that before. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, yeah. In many ways, you are uniquely prepared for a lot of this, which is coming from a pastor. Look, one of the biggest criticisms that pastors face is that we're intolerable people pleasers. We just want to keep people happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's why some pastors are just really bad at conflict management, even though that should be an integral part of of our jobs. Hats off to you there. I want to just, you've raised an idea in my head and you talked about how some people are more easily influenced by others. Some people just have natural resilience. Some people like you probably had some natural resilience to begin with, but that's been absolutely honed over all your years as an LE and into YouTube and, and all that. So in your mind, okay, somebody wants to get on social media. Someone wants to put themselves out there, but they have not done any of the self-work that is needed to be able to cope. Like they could be grinding away for years and not seeing success, but they could post one video that gets 100 million views and then suddenly overnight they're a social media superstar. What in your mind is the self-work or whatever it is that is necessary to prepare yourself for that kind of success, should that success come one day? I I think you need a sense of identity that transcends others' opinions of yourself. As I reflect on my journey, man, it is tough. One of the, I think, the core pitfalls is that I am what I produce. I am what I do. For me, this was 
uh, a philosophy that I didn't realize I had held until it resulted in uh, quite a heavy season of depression. And it was actually through counseling that my counselor, through a series of questions and all kinds of things, like helped me to realize, oh, I actually believe that what others think about me has some objective bearing on who I am and the value that I put out into the world. And as long as that relationship was intact, I was subject to the whims of the crowd. And so when I found my sense of identity in something external to that, that's where I found a lot more peace with what I was doing. Yeah, wow. No, thank you for being so vulnerable. Let's talk before our time is up and our time is almost up about the landscape of social media today. We have almost... When people talk about online platforms like YouTube or like Instagram, they often talk about the early adopters, that that initial growth phase, the mass adoption, and then the plateauing of the thing. And it almost seems like TikTok is in that space now. We've seen all of the other major social media platforms adopt short-form content as a fairly significant part of their, their own platform. What does the social media landscape look like for you today? If somebody is looking to get started on social media for the first time, and maybe this is going into your coaching mentor role, because I know that you do that with quite a number of people, what would you tell them? What would you say? How would you start if you had to start from zero? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, the the way that I try and encourage people to think about this is less of, oh, I am a YouTuber, or I am an Instagrammer, or I'm a podcaster. Um, You know, uh, just a few short years ago, that was the best way to think about the way that you step into the online space. Uh, Take an inventory of your skill set. What medium would you prefer? Who is your audience? Where are they? Uh, You know, the stereotypes, oh, if you're wanting to reach Gen Z, they're over there on TikTok. If you want to reach single mothers, they're over there on Pinterest or fill in the blank. And that might still have some truth to it. But I think that the way that social media works now is that more or less everyone is everywhere. And that just seems to be the trend. And even if you yourself as a user only frequent one or two places, there's an opportunity here. And the insight is this, is that if you can figure out how to create the right type of content in the right medium, then you can actually syndicate your content all over the place. And so, for example, something like short-form content can be syndicated across Facebook, across Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Pinterest, fill in the blank. And so, the shift from I'm a YouTuber to I'm a content creator, and I'm a content creator who happens to upload across multiple different platforms all at the same time, just multiplies your opportunities for success. Beyond that, you can think about workflow. And how, okay, so therefore, if I need to be on all the platforms every single day, How do I systematize my approach so that I can actually get more done with less effort? So something like starting a video podcast, for example, is very common advice because you can take a video podcast, you can upload that to a podcast feed, you can upload that to a YouTube channel, and from there, you can extract the best 30 to 60 second bits and upload them as short form content across every single platform. From there, you can take your 10 minute segments or some of your most important questions that you might wanna ask a guest, and then turn them into blog write-ups and then use that content for email output. And so all that to say is that through the work of one video podcast, it might result potentially in dozens, if not literally hundreds of pieces of content. And so it's more about building systems of how do you take what you're doing and what you're good at 
and get in front of as many people as possible. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the challenge is that the algorithms seem to have been oversaturated. There's just so many people playing the game now. And so you don't want to just try and take one shot. Ideally, you spread out the risk by doing many different things. And the goal is by doing many things at a high enough level with enough patience, something ultimately will give. And that's how you get your kind of first breakthrough. Look, Justin, I think that's uh, really interesting. Thank you very much for, for that. I want to give people an opportunity if they want to take the next step in exploring the social media space responsibly and do it in a way that's healthy. You have some fantastic resources to help them do that. So what are they? How can they get them? All that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I love helping ministry leaders learn how to reach their first million people with the gospel. So if that's you, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder at a church, if you're just like myself, someone who loves Jesus and wants to tell people about what he's done for you, then I'd love to work with you. There's two kind of on-ramps to the whole world. Number one, there's a book that's available for 99 cents on Amazon. It's called The Empty Pews to a Million Views. Uh, book. It's just by my name. And the idea is it's a step-by-step guide on how to reach your first million people with the gospel. If you're more of a video person, then I have a masterclass that you can check out. It's called thedigitalmissionaryacademy.com slash masterclass. And that's several hours worth of training and basically a lot of the questions that people have when they first get started online. So that's thedigitalmissionaryacademy.com slash masterclass. Fantastic. Hey, Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Love everything that you do, man. Just continue to pray for you and the ministry and your family. You guys are awesome. Keep shining your light and try to be able to deal with living in beautiful Hawaii. I know that it must be a real burden for you. Do what you can. Ironically, as you say it, it's about a bit, been about a week of downpour rain. And incidentally, <laughs> it is tough. We live two yeah. blocks from the beach. And so we've been prohibited from the beach for the last couple of days. It has been rough. So oh. please do pray for us. We appreciate it. We'll keep praying. Yeah. May the sun come out. Yeah. We will hope that's happened. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Justin. We will see you in another episode of Science Radio. Catch you later. This episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A print subscription is $28 a year, or just $14 for a digital subscription. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. This is an Adventist media podcast. 